Welcome to another episode of the Urban Uncovered podcast, where it is my job to interview pioneering scientists and authors to tease out some of their most fascinating work. Here we discuss neuroscience and psychology tools for everyday living. I'm Ayatollah Bain, I'm a translational neuroscience student and a researcher at University College London. In today's podcast episode, we're going to be talking about a pioneering brainwave test that could dramatically increase the early diagnoses of Alzheimer's. This new EEG technique is known as fast periodic visual stimulation. And joining us on today's episode is none other than Dr. George Stuthard. He's going to help us better understand it as he is a senior lecturer at the University of Bath and one of the leading researchers in Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Stuthard, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to another episode of the Urban Uncovered podcast, where it is my job to interview pioneering scientists and authors to tease out some of their most fascinating work. Here we discuss neuroscience and psychology tools for everyday living. I'm Ayatollah Bain. I'm a translational neuroscience student and a researcher at University College London. In today's podcast episode, we're going to be talking about a pioneering brainwave test that could dramatically increase the early diagnoses of Alzheimer's. This new EEG technique is known as fast periodic visual stimulation. And joining us on today's episode is none other than Dr. George Stuthard. He's going to help us better understand it as he is a senior lecturer at the University of Bath and one of the leading researchers in Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Stuthard, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Hi, thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, by the end of this podcast episode, folks, I promise you're going to understand a lot more about this powerful new tool. There's going to be a little bit of story. There's going to be a lot of discussion about the people who made these discoveries. And there's going to be a little bit of, you know, technical language. Um, so, yeah, there's no way to avoid that. So let's hope for the best. Um, so, Dr. Stothard, um, how would you like to best describe what uh, fast periodic visual stimulation is? Yeah, so it's um, a technique that you use uh, in conjunction with EEG. Mm -hmm. So EEG is the uh, direct recording of um, uh, neural activity using electrodes that you place on the surface of uh, somebody's head. Um, And those electrodes will pick up uh, coordinated neural activity. So when you have a bunch of neurons that respond to a particular stimulation, um, so a sound or, a, or an image, for example, or they fire uh, because they're involved in an internally driven cognitive process, so memory or attention, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> then they will create an electrical signal that you can detect on the surface of the scalp. Um, and what fast periodic visual stimulation does is it provides the brain with a, with a, uh, a sensory input um, okay. at, at a very fixed uh, periodic rate. So what we do is we present images very rapidly to people um, and we fix the rate at which those images appear. And then what happens is the brain mirrors that response. So if you present three images per second to somebody on screen, um, you will see a very strong response in the recording from the brain that, that reflects that, that three hertz signal. Um, so the brain is giving you back what you put in. Okay. 
That's quite fascinating. So it's capable of measuring visual, semantic, and linguistic processing all within just minutes. Yeah. So what I just described is is the basic is what's called a steady state response, and and that has that has been around almost as long as EEG itself has been around. So EEG was discovered in the 1930s,、mm-hmm. um, and one of the first effects that they noticed was that. Um, presenting uh, stimuli, uh, uh, flashing lights at, at fixed intervals, created these these responses in in the recordings that match the frequency that the lights were being flashed at. That that is old, an old technique. It's a very powerful technique. It's an old technique. What is new and added with fast periodic visual stimulation is that in that stimulation、uh, sequence, you embed Um, rare, unusual events, and when you see these rare or unusual events, or these events that that differ in some characteristic from the preceding events,、mm-hmm. your brain triggers a, a change detection response,、um, and and we can pick that up in the EEG. And what that means is the technique can be adapted to measure lots of different cognitive functions. So you you mentioned a, a couple there. Fast periodic visual stimulation has now been shown. To be able to measure all of those things,、um, and the way it does it is it, it all hangs on discrimination. So, if you have a stream of stimuli that are periodically changing in characteristic, so perhaps every fifth image that the, they become bigger or smaller, or、um, they change semantic category,、mm-hmm. then we can pick up the brain passively detecting that change. And what drives the change is up to you as an experimenter. So, if you want to do a visual processing study, then you can mess around with how large or small or high-low contrast the stimuli are. But if you're a memory researcher, then you can embed、uh, previously seen stimuli in that stimulus train and see whether the brain is able to recognise or remember stimuli. So it's it's very flexible, and that that's mostly what my work has been doing in the last five or six years. Is is seeing where we can adapt this technique to. What cognitive function can we use、um, this technique with? Lovely. So you you mentioned a range of cognitive functions here. So wh- what exactly are they? Would you be able to categorize、uh, what brain、yeah. functions does it exactly measure? Yeah. Well, the technique was really developed fully initially by.、Um, A man called Bruno Rossion, who leads a lab in France now.、Mm-hmm. He was in Belgium,、um, and he had focused on face processing. Okay. So he had developed this technique as a way of measuring the discrimination of different faces and the detection of content within those faces. So maybe、okay. emotional content, or eye gaze, or novelty. Um, I came across Bruno's work at a conference, a poster session at a conference in 2015,、mm-hmm. and and it really the 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 practical benefits that this approach had、um, really struck home with me, and we can speak about those in a bit. But、um, I basically came across the technique in 2015, but it had only been developed with face processing. Now I'm a dementia researcher. Face processing isn't A function that drops out, particularly in dementia. So, it was an interesting technique, but it wasn't useful in its current form for me. So, I came back to the UK and started trying to adapt it to look at cognitive functions that are relevant to dementia. So, looking at memory and 
looking at attention. So those are the cognitive functions that I've expanded the technique into. All right, what changes have you implemented to help patients suffering with dementia using this technique? So what changes did you implement? Well, I've adapted the technique for the purposes of diagnosis. So that's what we're hoping to use the technique for. So I've taken what Bruno had done in the face processing world, adapted it to look at memory Mm. primarily, although we look at a a ton of stuff, but most of our um, our most fully fledged version of the task is is a memory task, and it's the one we've published most of. Does it target specific? types of memory or yes recognition memory recognition memory. okay it's a passive and objective measure of recognition memory Mm. Um, and the reason we picked that is because um recognition memory relies on on a brain area those parahippocampal gyrus yes um, and that's an area of the brain that fills full of alzheimer's pathology in the early stages of the disease so we expect this brain area to start misbehaving early on in the disease so, so that's that's what promotes early diagnosis sorry can you say that again so based on that that's how you that's how you're able to early diagnose alzheimer's that's that's the direction we're going in yeah we can't diagnose outside it's not being used as a diagnostic tool yet right. it's still in development um we but we have published all of the proof of principle data around that the most recent publication was in brain in september um, showing that we can passively and objectively measure recognition memory in Alzheimer's patients in a two-minute task and that, that the outcome of that test discriminates, uh, you can use the outcome of that test to discriminate them from healthy older adults to around 90% accuracy. So that's the direction we're trying to build this so that you could passively and objectively measure and screen people uh, as they get older to pick up cognitive impairment as as their brain changes with age and with disease. Oh, okay, that's quite fascinating. For all you listeners out there, uh, the paper that has been just mentioned is going to be found right down in the show notes. Uh, so um, uh, Dr. Stuthard's uh, paper titled A Rapid Neural Measure of Implicit Recognition Memory Using Fast Periodic Visual Stimulation is quite fascinating, so make sure to read it. Um, I, I just wanted to curiously asking uh, what barriers has the you know fast periodic visual stimulation overcome which previous objective reports of cognitive decline uh, used to face did you so yeah well what's novel other than yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah it's got a lot of practical advice so first of all if we compare it to what's done in clinic today yeah um, so if you want to assess someone's cognitive function in a dementia clinic today okay you ask them to do a pen and paper test. Mm. You ask them to do something like the MOCA or the mini mental state exam or the Addenbrooke's cognitive exam. Mm. Um, now these all require the patient to be able to understand you. Okay. Uh, most of the time to be able to speak English unless you have a translated version and somebody that's able to deliver the instructions in their native language. Um, they need to be able to generate a response and, and the problem with that is that you 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 end up exposed to a lot of different confounds. So intelligence, education, cultural confounds, and anxiety are the, are the big ones. So essentially, dementia patients can be very stressed 
when they're doing sort of healthy older adults. They know there's a lot on the line. They want to get the answers right and that can affect their performance. Or they're doing it in their second language. So um, they're having to translate and overcome all the linguistic barriers before they can even start providing the cognitive uh, responses that you're interested in. So a passive test bypasses those um, and an objective test also uh, bypasses those to an extent. Now, the advantage is that this technique has over, so that's, that's you know, the advantage of an objective measure versus a, a, an explicit, a, a passive measure versus an explicit measure. But this technique also has advantages over other neuroscience measures, so other EEG or, or MR measures. All right. It's very fast. You can do it in just two minutes. And it's, and it's completely passive, as I've said. And there are various technical um, signal processing benefits to this approach that allow it to be done very quickly and for individual subject responses to be quite reliable. Um, I don't think this is a podcast for EEG nerds, <laughs> so I won't go into too much you can, detail. You can, you can dive deep into it, and then we can just start, you know, explain the terminology being used. Okay. Well, okay, so... It, very simply, because you provide the stimuli at a, at a specific frequency. Yes. Um, so you provide the stimuli, say, at six hertz, six images per second. You know in advance exactly which bit of the EEG frequency spectrum you're looking for. Okay. Okay? Mm-hmm. Which means you can throw away everything else. You can just just look for activity at that single frequency, okay. right? So, um, an analogy would be: uh, imagine you recorded an orchestra, okay. and you wanted you so you record a whole orchestra, and there's a point at which all the instruments are playing, but you want to know how good is the first oboe player, right? Now imagine how difficult that is if you can't turn down everybody else in the orchestra. You've got to listen to all the musicians playing at the same time and make some objective decision about how well the oboe is doing. That's really, really difficult if all the other instruments are playing at the same time. Now that's the way traditionally EEG has has been working, right? So you have to listen to everything else that the brain is doing at the time that you're looking for this, this quite small signal that's related to your task. Well. Fast periodic visual stimulation bypasses that. It solves that problem. And so the analogy is it allows you to turn down all the other instruments and you can just listen or observe the activity at the frequency that you care about and ignore everything else. So if your participant is heating up or cooling down, which they humans tend to do, of course. That creates noise in the EEG spectrum. Well, with fast periodic visual stimulation, you ignore it because it's not at the frequency that you care about. If there's electromagnetic interference, which there is in virtually every EG lab that exists, you can ignore it because it's at a different frequency. If they're becoming drowsy and the uh, alpha band activity is going up, you can ignore it because it's at a different frequency. And so it's very, very specific and precise. It allows you to really characterize activity in a very, very narrow range and what that means is um, you don't need to record for very long and you get a good signal from a single subject in just a handful of minutes. 
Okay. So as we can see, there are a lot, lot of advantages for you know using mm -hmm. fast. But uh, okay, uh, you mentioned something. Um, um, you, you're right. You're referring back a lot to you know uh, the behavior of the subject. Uh, have you noticed any like uh, individual differences in terms of the relationship between you know uh, their performance and uh, the outcomes on the tests in general? So we haven't. Um collected a lot of patient data so we we only we have 20 alzheimer's patients tested and about 50 mild cognitive impairment patients tested yeah. um, okay. so currently i mean there's definitely variability within the groups um the alzheimer's patients are close to floor so um they're close to showing no response okay. but there's definitely still variability within within those groups so there's there's also overlap between the alzheimer's and older adult group so there are some patients that are you know within the older adult range and older adults that are within the patient range now a perfect diagnostic tool wouldn't have that overlap what that reflects is it's early days you know we're still of in course. development um there's refinements to be done we still need to work out how to use this tool most effectively um but uh yeah I'm not sure if that answers your uh, question. I, th I think it perfectly does. So you maybe yeah. maybe age is a slight contributor to the individual differences. Yeah, and and um, physiology as well. So um, the strength of any response of any EG response is influenced by things like um, uh, the orientation of neural tissue, mm -hmm. so anatomy basically. Um, that will vary from from one person to another as to you know the angle at which that particular population of neurons is facing so oh, wow. um if they're facing in a in a slightly different angle that means maybe the response shows up at an electrode slightly differently from another person mm -hmm. um <clears throat> so that's a big driver uh, and then there are smaller things like um, tissue conduction bone conduction um the conductivity of the scalp uh, whether people are sweating you know so a lot of uh to us psychologists, uninteresting physiology, um, physiological kind of noise sources um, that we have to try and overcome. And so working out how to best measure these responses at an individual subject level without biasing your responses or cherry picking is, is a challenge. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's quite true. I mean, by mentioning all of that, what, what would you say are the main limitations to the fast periodic visual stimulation? I mean, obviously, yeah. there are well, a lot of pros, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So limitations, um, it depends whether you're talking as a clinician or as an experimentalist. So as a clinician, yes. um, you need EEG. Uh, so that's an, an additional factor mm. um, that, you know, most dementia clinics don't use EEG. Um, so that if, if you could do this test without EEG, of course you would be doing it, right? So yeah. um, adding EEG is, is, a, is a technical complication or an additional complication that I, you know, in an ideal world, I'm sure dementia clinicians would prefer that there was a test out there that didn't need it. Mm. But to counter that, what has really changed in the last 10 years is that now we can use EEG like headsets in real world settings. So you don't need a lab 
as anymore. You don't need Faraday cages. You don't need expensive infrastructure. You can fit an EEG system into a backpack now. They're wearable. They're comfortable. They're cheap. Um, so, from a from a practical kind of clinical rollout point of view, you know, if we could make a test good enough, the NHS could easily afford it. Okay. And and it would be from a practical point of view, you you could absolutely roll it out. Compared to say this test relied on fMRI mm. or PET scanning, then you would always be constrained by the fact that the scanners are incredibly expensive and access to them is limited. Well, EG doesn't have that problem. EG is cheap and you can and you can roll it out at scale as long as you've got the right test. Mm. Um, from an experimental point of view, um, so if you if you if you're a psychologist or neuroscientist listening to this and trying to and thinking, well, you know, is this a technique that I'd want to use? Um, the 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 limitations are that um, most of the stimulus presentation is too rapid to really allow um, sort of metacognition and decision making or executive function tasks to be well implemented. Okay. So it's not good for that. Um, it's it's just not the right tool for measuring those types of cognitive functions. Um, what it is really good for measuring is visual processing, attention, mm. early memory, um, semantic memory, language, uh, read like linguistic processing. It's great for that. Anything the brain does automatically and fast, without too much user effort, uh, fast periodic visual stimulation is really good for. But if you're if you're doing you know uh, complex co cognition decision making, then it's it's probably not the right tool for you. All right, so it's it's very context specific in regards to what brain functions it measures, and the and even if, um, I mean it, it's deemed a very very useful tool, it still has to be coupled with EEG. Um, yes. Yeah, within clinics. So, um, yeah, I get, but I. As, as it seems, the pros definitely do outweigh the cons, I mean. <laughs> um, I think so. I mean, yeah. it's certainly why I picked it up. And so for context, I spent my PhD in four years of postdoc work, working with um, what are called event-related potentials, mm -hmm. which is uh, a way of using EEG to measure cognitive function. Um, and and I also did some, some network analysis, uh, graph theory work with EEG. Wow. And... Um, they're all great tools for, for the experimental researcher but if you're interested in making something for a clinic yeah. and for a real world application they're very unlike to to be be the right thing so so fast periodic visual stimulation the reason i really picked it up and tried to adapt it and, and work with it mm. was really because of two things the practical advantages that you could you can get it done so quickly uh, and that it works at single subject level um, but also that it's passive you know that for me my career aim is to try and make a difference with dementia diagnosis and and the benefits that this brings are especially useful for a diagnostic tool lovely so you're you're the main long-term vision here is to really lower you know um lower the the practically age of diagnoses by a certain yes. amount of years yes absolutely so we diagnose dementia 
approximately 20 years too late. Oh my God. So, so most people have had, the, the disease has been underway for most people at a neural level yeah. for 20 years. By the time that their symptoms emerge and are clear enough mm. that they take themselves to the doctor or they're taken to the doctor by their partner or, or a family member, that it's too late by and large. It's too late to intervene. It's, it's most of the time, it's too late to really, uh, as the pharmaceutical industry will, will tell you, it's, it's often too late to even enroll them in clinical trials. It's, um, we need to be picking the consequences of this neural, pro this kind of uh, neuropathological process up much, much earlier. Um, so we need biomarkers. Now there are really good structural biomarkers out there um, and and that field just progresses and improves year on year on year. Would you be so able to we're mention getting some? better at sorry? Would you be able to mention some? Yeah, so you can you can measure um, the amount of the level of different proteins in the brain which okay. reflect how much Alzheimer's pathology you have. Mm. So those are proteins called amyloid and tau. And you can measure them in different ways. So you can measure cerebrospinal fluid, okay. um, or you can measure blood. So blood is a blood biomarkers of those proteins, and that's a relatively new thing. Um, or you can scan people um, using PET scanning. All right. So those that field moves on and gets better and better and better. But what we don't have are good functional biomarkers. So we can say a brain has X amount of protein, but yeah. we can't say very well what the cognitive consequences are of that until it's too late. And that's where, that's the gap I'm trying to fill. Could we make a tool that could pick up a very subtle but meaningful change in the way a brain area functions before it emerges as a real behavioral symptom? All right, so I guess it's very, it's very time sensitive. So it's it's not about just collecting the you know the biomarkers as endpoints. It's about when that collection exactly. happens. Yeah. yeah, you've got to pick people up early enough. You've got to follow them for a long period of time. That's always a great challenge in in my Especially research field. Is like how do you get the funding to follow a patient for five to ten years, and mm. how do you convince the funder that that's worth giving you money for? <laughs> not going to get a return from it for such a long time um yeah so you've got to follow and map people's trajectory through the disease process um if you really want to develop these tools all right so for proper development we should start by middle age should we yeah, yeah. There... so yeah it's it's i mean by late middle age you are probably entering the you know at the at-risk period mm -hmm. so the, the people are diagnosed with alzheimer's disease as for example is the most common form of dementia um at any point between their late 50s and you know forever however long they live um now the risk goes up as you get older yeah um but yeah, it's it's certainly the case that yeah I I've seen and tested patients in I think the youngest patient we've tested is is, is fifty five. Okay. Um, so any much younger than that, and um, they tend to be treated as early onset Alzheimer's disease, and 
early onset Alzheimer's disease has a has a very different genetic profile than regular late onset Alzheimer's disease. Um, so they tend to be treated as a, as a slightly different group. Um, but yes, what we should be doing uh, is intervening in middle age. So we should be encouraging people to adopt the sort of lifestyle uh, changes that, that keep their brain healthy. Um, and if we had drugs uh, available to prescribe um, and we were able to detect a disease positively in middle age, then potentially you would also be prescribing at that point. But we're, you know, many years from that point. Oh, okay.